Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Kevin Shan, the Global Policy Campaign Strategies Director at Meta Platforms, formerly Facebook, where he's focused on the future of the internet, including the metaverse, AR, VR, MR, and what's sometimes called the, quote, creator economy. He comes to this relatively new role after serving as Facebook's head and then Director of Policy in Canada, as well as roles in the Canadian government and federal politics. I'm grateful to speak with him about the future of the internet, its economic and social possibilities, and the implications for public policy. Kevin, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Well, thank you very much, Sean, for having me. As I mentioned, you previously spent time in public policy and politics and then doing policy for Facebook in Canada. You've since moved to a global position in which, amongst other things, you're focused on the policy implications of the metaverse and how to design a policy framework that enables us to iterate and innovate and protects against some of the downsides, which we'll get into. Let's just start on how you came into these issues and roles. How does Meta interact with public policy? Kevin, how does someone like you spend your days? Sure. Well, look, I mean, in terms of how Meta thinks about policy, well, we really have three types of policy. And I think it's not always clear to people from the outside. You know, we have these things called content policies, which were really our rules about what should be on the platforms, what should be removed from the platform. So basically a set of rules like how to govern uh, content on the platform. We also have these things called product policies, which is really advising our product teams about how to make sure that what we are building is done responsibly and that is well received in the marketplace. And then we have, I think, the more traditional uh, view of things, which is the, the, the public policy piece which is how do, how do we interact with governments around the world? And when you are out working in a region, as I was in Canada, you really have to do a bit of all three. And then, you know, and, and, I, and I used to tell my team in Canada, you know, the perfect solution on all these fronts is that sweet spot, you know, between what's good for Canada and what's good for Meta and trying your hardest to enlarge that area of overlap. So if you think about some of the things we've done recently, by translating the platform into a Nuktatut, you know, so that so that Nunavumiut can see their reality better reflected on the platform. I think that's a good example of that. If you think about the work we did with the National Arts Center during COVID with Canada Performs, which was a live streaming program, emergency relief program to provide support for artists while also giving them an outlet to perform live on digital platforms. I think that's that's another example. So trying to figure out what the 
what that kind of Venn diagram overlap space is. I mean, I think that's the rule of thumb. I mean, I think you asked the other question was in terms of a typical day, you know, there's never really a dull moment. I'm managing a global team now. So making calls at all hours of the day, you know, at night, early in the morning uh, to make sure we get, you know, folks who are in, you know, Europe, uh, sorry, in Asia and in, in India, working to try to help articulate a vision for the metaverse that is understandable to a broad policy audience. And I think that's not always a, a simple task because a lot, of, a lot of what is going to happen is still ahead of us. And I think, you know, with a global or central role, you can spend almost all of your time internally in meetings. But I am trying to make sure that I still get out to engage externally. So I'm really glad that, that, that you're inviting me and that I'm, I'm really happy to be here. That's a great segue, Kevin, to my next question. You mentioned that you're, you're spending a lot of time working and thinking on the metaverse. Help me understand what the metaverse is. Is it like a virtual reality world or a new kind of internet? Is it one thing or multiple things? Can you elaborate? Yeah, sure. I mean, th- this is one of those terms that I think was actually coined some years ago in a book, but um, has only recently become more commonly known. From our perspective, you know, the metaverse is really the next stage of computing after the mobile internet. So we're all very familiar today with how the mobile internet works. You largely access it through your mobile phone or perhaps other portable devices. And that's enabled a lot of economic growth and a lot of social possibilities. And really what we're talking about is the stage or the platform, the computing platform that comes after that. So if you think about it over the course of the last 10 years, right, the way we have communicated on the internet has become richer, if you will. So you kind of move from text-based communications to images, then to video. And more recently, we've had things like 360 videos that try to give you a more immersive experience. The metaverse is the next conceptual leap in that. So we're moving towards a more, an even more immersive and a more embodied virtual environment where your communications and interactions feel physically real, or at least they're going to much more approximate the real world. So one of the ways you can think about this is that you're kind of getting close to how you would communicate in the real world. Give you an example is, you know, I think when you think about the mobile internet, a lot of the communications have been in what we call asynchronous. So you send a text, let's say, and then you get a response back or you, you know, sometime later, or you post on social media and that post is then later found by other people, not necessarily in real time. In the metaverse, communications will largely be synchronous and you're going to feel present and in the room with everyone you're interacting with. And so it is going to be, there's some element of this that will for sure be virtual. So it will be VR, virtual reality. There will be some elements of this that will be augmented reality. So putting things, layering a virtual uh, 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 layer, if you will, into our physical space. And I think the real holy grail and what I think everybody is hoping to kind of crack, um, and we're still perhaps some ways away, is this notion of mixed reality where you're actually going to be able to uh, seamlessly integrate a virtual environment into your real world environment so that you have an ability to enhance the, the way you're working, to enhance the way you're interacting with people, to enhance the way you're, or, uh, you're learning, for example. 
Let me follow up, Kevin. In a long-form essay about the metaverse in May 2022, your colleague Nick Clegg wrote that there are three factors that will make the metaverse experience feel more like what we have in our daily lives. Ephemerality, embodiment, and immersion. Can you elaborate on these factors and how they will combine to create a unique experience? Sure. So when we talk about ephemerality, we're, we're, what we're really saying is um, there's, there's going to be a difference, kind of like what I said earlier, there's a difference between, you know, the way we've been communicating in, in, in the mobile world or in Web 2.0, where you are writing an email, you are largely posting things, or you're texting, where there is a, you know, a large degree of permanence to what you're doing. Uh, you're kind of putting things out there and things can be you know, saved, things are actually there for others to discover. And as the computing power, the metaverse uh, reaches the, from the, the, the potential that it needs to be at, we're going to really more and more be talking about having real life, real time conversations with people. And so that kind of takes away this notion of uh, putting something there out there for people to see. It's really going to be more about communicating as we have done traditionally you know, kind of in a non-digital way. So that's what we mean by, you know, we're, we're looking at more a more synchronous type of communication. Embodied, you know, really is about feeling like you are, you yourself are present in the moment. You're going to be able to, to have a sense of being somewhere, whether it be in some, let's say, natural environment that you're going to visit for school or if you're in a meeting and you, you, you just feel like you're actually in a room versus, I guess, you know, what, what we've been doing for the last two or three years, just staring at a screen with a bunch of squares. You're actually going to feel like you're in the room of others. And then, and then this sense of immersiveness is really a sense that others are there with you. This sense that you are sharing an experience. And I can tell you, I, I meet actually with my team once a week in a metaverse environment. And just the dynamic is so different, right? Like when you're instead of looking at, you know, a bunch of squares or rectangles on a screen, you're actually sitting around a conference table. You know very well that, you know, one of the, you know, somebody is to your right, someone's to your left. You can make eye contact. I was even, we were talking about something a bit sensitive a few weeks ago, and I could tell that somebody just by their body language, even though it was an avatar, that some of the body language suggested they had something to say or were uncomfortable with where we were leaving things at. And I was able to call on them, you know, to further, you know, kind of articulate what, what their concerns were. Those kinds of cues you're able to pick up in a metaverse environment because there is this sort of immersive quality to it. If the metaverse is going to be distributed and decentralized, kind of like the current version of the internet, what are Meta's goals or expectations? Will it basically be like Facebook, but different? Or are you aspiring to do something completely different? What's Meta's business vision? Yeah, I mean, I think I should just maybe, and this is a, this is a, a big question, um, Sean, but, but, but maybe if I would just back up a little bit to say at a high level, you know, before we get to, um, I think, what it means for social media, I think at a high level, you know, we do think that the metaverse will be different from what's come before, from what Web 2.0 was or what the mobile internet is. I think we hope that the governance model for the metaverse will be different than what we have seen mobile internet. So in the mobile web, what we have experienced is really sort of two big companies serving as the gateway to everything. So you think about Apple with its iOS ecosystem and then Google with its Android ecosystem. 
And if you want to, if you're a developer and you want to build a mobile app or participate in Web 2.0, if you're a creator and you want to kind of sell something in these two environments, you really have no choice, right? But to go through these two environments. And I think we are beginning to understand, you know, some of the challenges with that in terms of rent seeking, in terms of control, in terms of power. The other thing is economists will say to you, well, the value of the entire ecosystem is reduced if you pursue a closed approach, right, to to managing these ecosystems. An open approach that maximizes compatibility across the system actually maximizes the economic pie for everyone. So for us at Meta, an an open metaverse would be a very good thing for everyone. And that means, I think, you know, it, it means at least two things. One is that technical standards are compatible across devices, and we're working in cross-industry groups to sort of try to establish those, those standards. But also that interoperability needs to be paramount. So as an example, you know, if you're an avatar and you purchase a digital asset, so let's say it's like a, you know, I don't know, like a shirt or something, you should be able to port that to other uh, environments, other worlds, and be able to, to use it. If you build a virtual environment on one platform, you should be able to port that to a completely different platform as well. And so we think that this, uh, this notion of interoperability will be very important in the metaverse so that it's really one metaverse and it's not, and it's not something that is partitioned or separated and owned by different companies. If I may, Sean, then, I mean, I think take the second point on, on the difference with traditional kind of 2D social media, I think there is going to be a big difference there as well. So if you think about it, you know, the, the, the interaction in the metaverse are going to approximate, as we just discussed about synchronous communications, it's going to approximate real world experiences. Then we, you know, in other words, we're really moving away from this notion of, of asynchronous communications or a certain degree of permanence to your communications. So we likely will have a lot less of what is written, you know, so posts on platforms waiting to be discovered by others, which really lends itself to the way speech has been governed on the internet currently, which is really with content policies backed up by potentially some public laws. The governance model, presumably in the metaverse, will more closely approximate how we think about speech in the real world. And so to give you one implication, you know, from a privacy point of view, right now, I think people actually have some degree of expectation that companies, platforms are reviewing posts, right? Are reviewing what people are saying. And if it's it's violative of the content rules or is violative of the law, then those things get removed. And I think we're going to move into a space where it's going to be a bit different because once you're talking about synchronous communications, the people's expectations of privacy change. So, you know, if I invite you into my, into my home and we're talking, we don't think that, you know, the builder of the house or the government is listening in on us. And I think similarly in a virtual environment, if it's just you and me in some space, we have probably, most people would probably have that same expectation of privacy. And so, you know, there's this big question of what does governance look here? And I think the other big one, the the other big shift is really, you know, we're kind of going to move from content policies where you can say, well, this is allowed and that isn't allowed. We're going to shift from that 
because the communications are ephemeral, as you say, we're going to move from that to probably a governance model that's focused not on content, but on conduct. So what is your behavior in this environment? And what is acceptable to the community? And what is it? And, and, and what are the consequences? We're going to come to questions of governance and public policy in a moment. But before we get there, I just want to talk about the possible applications of the metaverse. I should say, in parentheses, that here at The Hub, we're generally in favor of progress for progress sake. It's broadly healthy for our society to continue to pursue the next frontier, whether it's medicine, the, the metaverse, or whatever. But more often than not, progress is a means. And it begs the question, what are the ends of the metaverse? What are some of the possible implications for, say, education or, or commerce or other fields of, of economic and social life? Yeah, I, mean, I, I completely, I completely get what you're saying, and and I'm going to try to ground these in like examples. I think that are that are we can already see today, so that people can feel like it's your audience can actually feel like it's 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 real. I think, in a nutshell, the end state will be you know the metaverse will augment what we already do in real life, but make it easier and richer for everyone. So let let's look at I guess maybe three examples. One is in the health space. You talked about that, you know, but let's say practicing surgery, we talk about immersive education, and then we just talk about generally economic opportunity. So there is an example, and, and folks can look this up, but there was actually recently an um, example that was, that was, that was, that made the headlines. It was a, um, a, a two conjoined twins. So they were joined at the head and um, they were in Brazil and they needed to be separated. And, and they were relatively old for separation. They were, I think, I think it was four years old. And the surgeon, what they did was obviously it's a very delicate procedure and you really, you know, it takes a long time to, to do the operation and you actually obviously uh, don't have a lot of margin for error. And what they did for months before the surgery was actually practice it in a virtual environment using Oculus Rift headsets and really stimulating the environment and what would, what, you know, what it would be like actually going through that surgery over and over again. It was ultimately, uh, at least, you know, in, in the in the immediate months deemed a success, which was really great to 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 learn. But but that's kind of an example of, of how this how this technology can help enable real value in society. The other one is, you know, another one that's kind of already coming to pass is this notion of immersive education. And so the idea that you can be in an, a, a, as a student be in an immersive environment to uh, learn is really going to be groundbreaking. Some of the early examples, you know, Georgian College here in Ontario, they actually are a leader, a world leader in this in this kind of use. Um, and one of the things, and, and, and if you go on their website, you'll find all these different courses actually that they're trying to integrate VR into. But one of the examples is you, using a virtual house to welcome indigenous students in for language revitalization classes. And so that, again, has been a very interesting thing to learn about and to, and, and to understand. And so that, that's been really great to see. And, and then the last thing, I guess, is just this general notion of economic opportunity. We think that already on these you know, 2D platforms, you're seeing all these creators emerging that are actually making you know, some amount of, of revenue, whether it's part-time or full-time, in a way that just wasn't possible before through sponsorship, 
through direct fundraising, through creating digital assets and selling them. And, and, and the metaverse, we think, is going to be even more impactful in that regard. And so we do have already creators, even in Canada, right, who are building these things. There's, a, there's an Indigenous person by the name of Joshua Conrad based out in BC, and he's really a 3D artist that's using augmented reality technology to build filters on behalf of different causes and on behalf of different organizations. And those are, again, just sort of net new ways to make a living, to build out a new business that is servicing a, a new sector of the economy. And so I think all those things are, are pretty important. I guess I should probably, I mean, I have this here, I should probably just share at a conceptual level, there was an analysis done last year on the potential economic value of the metaverse. This was um, done by analysis group, and they estimated globally that if the metaverse kind of proceeds along the same trajectory as the mobile internet, we're looking at a $3 trillion value by 2031. So that was about, you know, that was 10 years from, from last, from a year and a half ago. And in Canada alone, it would be about $20 billion in 2031. So I think that's a pretty sizable economic gain. And, but, but there's still a lot of work to be done, you know, ahead of us. And so we're, we're just very much still working with partners across the industry to help build the kind of foundational blocks for that. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. A big part of those foundational blocks, of course, is the, the role for public policy and and regulation in particular. And so I want to put a few questions to you along those lines, if, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same essay that I referred to earlier, Nick Clegg writes of the need for government regulation, quote, we must create thoughtful rules and put guardrails into place as the metaverse develops to maximize its potential for good and minimize the potential harms, unquote. Let me ask you, Kevin, when it comes to regulating the metaverse, How much scope do you envision between, say, national regulation versus some kind of global framework? And I suppose, depending on your answer, where should the locus of thinking be for what a policy framework for the metaverse ought to ultimately look like? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that one's tricky. I mean, like, as as someone who works at a company, I mean, I'm I'm probably going to say something that perhaps is not surprising. But I I think I want to find a way to say this that that it's going to be a bit more authentic because I think substantively there's the right answer. So let's, let me just let, let me just try let me just try to do this here. Look, so first of all, it is early days for this technology. Um, I think that's fair, and we've, we've talked about that. And I think some critics even say that look, this is not the direction that the future is headed. So there are a lot of people who are you know asking you know good questions that are critical about it. So I don't think this is something that is fully formed yet. We, we're still in the early stages. And so therefore, typically what we, what we say as a society, I think, is that it's probably too early to think about 
the architecture of regulation because it is very nascent. But overall, I think, you know, directionally, governance of the metaverse should kind of tie back to the principles I kind of talked about earlier in our conversation, really, which is really about openness and interoperability. And if, and it should favor those things. And, you know, if, if there are blanks to be filled, then, then, then they should be filled by regulation. But I think it, the reality is a lot of things are already regulated. And so really the trick will be not to regulate for regulation's sake, but to really understand what are the truly novel areas here. And, and if there are any, then we should be building rules around that. And for that, and again, I think it's too early to be specific about it, but I mean, Canada does have a pretty good track record historically about what does good regulation look like. So, you know, we, if you look at even our private sector privacy law, PIPIDA, it has been about principles and it's been about being technology neutral. And so principles, so that we're clear about what it is we want to support. And so perhaps it's this notion of openness as this notion of interoperability. And then we want it to be technology neutral in the sense that it should stand the test of time because it's anchored in principles that aren't going to change. And so perhaps the way you, the technologies change and sort of novel cases arise or unique cases arise but the principles don't change and, and therefore the framework is still relevant. And I think that's probably important to have instead of something that keeps, instead of something that keeps trying to chase after the latest thing, which can obviously, you know, change on a dime. I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that, that we should be talking about here. Well, I think maybe just, maybe just a bit beyond regulation. Um, I think a precursor to that, which we are actually trying to do is starting to have conversations about what kind of metaverse we want. And it's not just going to be, you know, it's not just going to be us that's going to build it. It's not one player. It's a very, very big ecosystem. We won't be able to do it alone. And we need actually to come together as different industry players, as civil society, as governments, as academics and experts to think through uh, how we should do this. And, and that starts with having conversations. And so my team actually has been building building out what we're calling the Metaverse Community Collective, which is bringing together experts from around the world to actually engage in these conversations. We just did a pilot in a virtual environment earlier this year. We're going to do one next week, actually. And, and assuming that these things work well, um, we're going to want to do a few more in the coming months. But I think, I think that's perhaps the stage we are at right now, which is developing a common understanding of what it means to help build for the Metaverse. And then from there, try to enunciate a set of principles or or, or 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 a set of policy positions and see if we can find common ground. I want to take up some of the issues that you raised there, Kevin. As a nascent technology, it strikes me that there are some similarities between where we currently sit with respect to the metaverse and where policymakers found themselves with the emerging technology of the internet back in the 1990s. As you know, as many of our listeners know, at the time, the government of Canada, including the CRTC, had to confront basic questions about the possible consequences of the technology, whether it should be thought of as a corporate entity or a public square, how it might be monetized, and ultimately whether to pursue proactive regulation or take a more hands-off approach and see how things evolved. In general terms, the government chose the latter approach and is now taking some steps to fill gaps and, and, and introduce regulation. 
I just want to ask about the parallels for you to the metaverse. Is there an optimal point for policymakers to start to turn their minds to these issues? Is there a case like the early internet that the government should take a hands-off approach for now? Or is there a case for a need to rather to start to develop a, a regulatory framework at, at this stage? Well, look, I mean, like, like I just said, like I, I really do think that it is very early stages, right, to think about regulation specifically. But, you know, I think if if we were to think about, you know, the, the, the past 10 years kind of with Web 2.0 as an example, I think one of the things we should be doing and could be doing is just building better, having better conversations and having better understanding I think some of the ideas that we, you know, that not, 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 you know, not in any particular country, I think generally that's the case. We see a lot of ideas about regulation emanating from all sorts of, of quarters that are actually um, wrongheaded and come from perhaps a, a lack of understanding of what the internet is. And so I think to me anyway, as a professional in this space, that's the lesson I've taken, which is why it's so important that in this new next generation that we're talking about in terms of the metaverse and in terms of virtual and augmented mixed reality, we should, we should do things differently. We should have more conversations. We should have more conversations earlier on so that uh, policymakers, so that people in the policy ecosystem have a better understanding of these environments so that we can have a better conversation and ultimately more effective regulation. And that's certainly what my my team has been charged to do. Now, I understand that Canadian firms are at this stage showing signs that they may be able to, quote unquote, punch above their weight in in the metaverse. Let me ask you a two part question. First, what might that mean? And second, can you talk a bit about the parts of the Canadian ecosystem that you and others are excited about? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, we, we look, we have an incredibly talented workforce in, in Canada, and, and I think that bodes well for the future. So if you think about Toronto and the corridor that extends down to Kitchener-Waterloo, if you think about Vancouver and Montreal as gaming hubs, and a lot of the, a lot of the germs of ideas and of the metaverse do originate from the gaming you know, industry. And so again, we have a very good head start there. There's just a wealth of talent and experience. There is also a lot of AI talent here, as you as you know. Canada is one of the pioneers of machine learning, and that dates back many decades and is based on decisions by successive governments over time. And that's actually led to a renaissance in AI globally. And so I think, you know, again, there's a lot here to build on. And it, it would seem that AR and VR is the same. We have, there actually is a very strong ecosystem in Canada already on this. We have at Meta given out unrestricted grants to 17 Canadian research labs to researchers who are actually helping invent the future. And so there's just a lot of, a lot of talent already present in Canada in all these different places and these different dimensions that allow, that potentially allow Canada, Canada to be a real to be a real leader here. I think, you know, if I may add, I mean, the, the, the one thing I would guard against, I, I think, in Canada is, is the sense of reflexive protectionism. You know, we, we, are a, we are a middle power. We are largely trade dependent as a country. And so I, I really think that our success and prosperity tied to welcoming trade, welcoming foreign investment. And yes, I think we, we want to scale up homegrown companies 
And here's the important part. We want to scale them up so they become global giants like Shopify. But, you know, being big, but staying in Canada or erecting walled gardens against sort of the global digital economy, I think it just doesn't seem to be smart geopolitically. And it's just not smart economic strategy in the medium or long run. Raises bigger questions about the state of the the global economy. We're having this conversation at a moment where we're seeing so-called decoupling between the U.S. and China and the prospects of a new digital curtain. Mm -hmm. Help us understand, Kevin, the consequences for business and users. And how does Meta, as an American-based global company, think about the prospect of decoupling? Yeah, that look, that's a really good question and a very, a very cutting edge one. And I actually, you know, thank you, Sean, for asking, because I don't think we think about think about that enough in Canada, to be honest. And I actually think we should all be concerned about that. And it doesn't really matter where you're from or, or what company you work at. You know, the global internet is valuable to the billions of people and the millions of businesses that rely on it every day, precisely because it is free and it is open. So what we mean by that and what I mean by that is like anybody can join, anyone can leave, anyone can interact and communicate freely through it. The splintering of the internet into a free and open internet, largely, I think you could say exemplified by quote unquote the West and an authoritarian internet like what we find in China and increasingly places like Russia is a real concern for anyone who cares about freedoms generally. And I mean, I would just add, you know, incidentally, like that is, that is why any domestic policies that we put in place that restrict the free flow of information should also be concerning. If we impute, you know, value into things like hyperlinks that are actually the lifeblood of, of, of information sharing on the internet, if we erect walls to protect our economy and cut it off or try to create friction that makes it less obvious how we plug into the global digital economy. I just think that those things are just directionally just away from this notion of a free and open internet at a time when we are facing fragmentation. And, and, and we should be clear about what are, what are the principles that underlie our digital policies and, and be clear about which side of that we stand. For my penultimate question, I want to move in a slightly different direction, if that's okay. Facebook has emerged in the past half decade or maybe slightly longer as a powerful tool for different forms of online advocacy, including, of course, politics. Let me ask a two-part question, Kevin. First, was that envisioned by the team? Maybe put differently, when do you think it became clear mm. that Facebook had this potential through its networking platform? And secondly, how does Meta balance its goal of creating a, a positive community experience on Facebook at the same time that it faces demands from advocacy groups, including politicians and others, yeah. to leverage the platform to advance messages or pursue a political goal? Yeah, Sean, again, these are, these are some great questions and, and, and I think people don't ask them enough. So, so thank you again. I mean, it, it actually is interesting and instructive. If you look back at to, you know, look back, you know, 10 years ago, you know, when Facebook was founded, you know, I think it was 19 years ago, you know, Facebook has always been a mission-driven company and with the goal of connecting everyone together and building community. And if you go back to its founding, it, again, it's report, important to remember Facebook existed before it was a company. So this mission is actually deeply baked into our DNA. Now, over time, you know, as we have found success and there are now, you know, two 
plus billion people on our services, you're going to naturally have different groups of people who will want different things from the platform. And I think that speaks to the controversy of being a global platform and working on a global platform. So for example, we can just take one just to illustrate the point, you know, on speech issues. I think no matter where you try to draw the line, so we'll go back to this notion of content policies that we have, no matter where you try to draw the line, there will be a good number of people on one side that say you took too much down and an equally good number of people that say you left too much up. That is, I think, the reality of content moderation today. And if governments and parliaments want to regulate that instead, I think that would be helpful to us, you know, you're setting industry-wide baseline standards. But I also think then we should also be clear-eyed about the fact that it will be governments and parliaments that will inherit or share in that responsibility, which, as I noted, is a very challenging space to be. So I just don't think that there are any free lunches here. I do think that, you know, part of the uh, this is content moderation is a wicked hard problem, which is you know something that someone from The Economist said to me recently. And I think that's right. And so we shouldn't pretend that there are easy answers to it. And probably no matter what you do, when you have two, three billion people using these services, no matter where you draw the line, there will be some sizable constituency that's going to have, you know, have an opposing view to that. Final question, coming back to the metaverse. Let's wrap up, Kevin, with you painting a bit of a picture of what success might look like. If you come back on Hub Dialogues in, say, three or five or 10 years, and I ask you what happened in the intervening time, what would you and Meta be satisfied with in terms of progress? Can you help us understand what that might ultimately look like? Yeah, look, look, first of all, Sean, I hope you'll have me back earlier than that. Deal. Look, I mean, I think for the Metaverse project, I think Success will be that people, consumers, right, see value in it. So, you know, I, I look at my kids and they are in, they're already in virtual worlds, in Roblox, in Minecraft, and they actually think nothing of buying virtual assets like clothes for their avatars. And they also build virtual worlds and they do them to play with each other, but they also do it to, to socialize. They actually spend time just, just hanging out in a virtual world that they built. I don't think this stuff will go away and it will be interesting to see how it evolves as the next generation comes of age. And of course, I, I think it'll be a success if we can help bring these new technologies to light. So we have talked a bit today about what is already there. We've talked a bit about the building blocks from a policy point of view, but from a technological point of view and, and based on the vision that we have, you know, a lot of this has not yet been invented yet. We're talking about lifelike avatars. We're talking about holographic projections from smart glasses. We are talking about persistent virtual worlds that millions of people can play and work in, and you need the computational power to be able to support that in a synchronous environment. All these things are, 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 are still, that they all still lie ahead. It's really exciting stuff, and I just feel very privileged to be along for the ride. Well, we've been grateful to be able to join you for part of that. Kevin Chan, the Global Policy Campaign Strategy Director at Meta Platforms, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you very much, Sean, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.